Welcome to the Institute, a podcast on the lives and work of fellows and friends of the Institute for the Arts and Humanities here at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I'm Philip Hollingsworth. In this episode, Sophia Ramos speaks with Associate Professor of Religious Studies Lauren Leave. In their conversation, Professor Leave talks about a collaboration in Nepal, as well as her current research on the rise of Christianity in Nepalese communities, as well as a global network of meditation centers. So in the fall, Arts and Sciences magazine had a story that you were featured in about your work in Nepal. Can you tell me about it? What was that like? And what was that whole project and experience about? So that was an amazing project. That was um, something that came up spontaneously. Because I work in Nepal, but it's not my main work in Nepal, it's really interesting because it brought together, it, it brought, put me into, started working on a project that I'd never worked on before, and it brought together people that I'd never worked with before. Its history is that I was out to dinner one night and found myself sitting next to Rich McLaughlin from the uh, math department, yeah. who had just gotten back from history, from a trip to Tibet, where he had, I'm not sure exactly what he was doing on the trip, but he identified Tibetan glacial lakes as a place that he wanted to work. Okay. So he works with water in, in various ways. And he'd heard that these lakes were sacred, and he knew that that mattered, but he didn't know quite how it mattered. And we ended up having a conversation where I said, oh, well, I work in the Himalayas, mm -hmm. um, and you know, the sacredness of these lakes and of the natural environment is my bread and butter. Right? Yeah. And so we start, started thinking, wouldn't it be cool if we could develop a project on climate change that had both a science element and a humanities element and bring it all together? And we brought in um, his colleague Roberto Camasa and Harvey Syme in the Marine Sciences Department, and we all got excited about it, and we went looking for funding, and we couldn't find anything mm. because it's so interdisciplinary, um, and it's just not really clear whose funding wheelhouse it would fit into. Um, and then just as we were sort of starting to give up, this fire grant call came out, and we said, wow, this is it. Yeah. Um, so what we did was initially we were supposed to go to Ladakh to do this, which would have been much easier because if we had worked on a lake in Ladakh, we would have been able to fly in, take a truck to the lake, spend a couple days at the lake, take a truck back, fly out, and the whole thing would have been done in about 10 days. Okay. As it turns out, the he needed to work, they needed to be working in a pristine glacial-fed lake. And pristine means no input other than from the glacial, glacier and no output. So only certain lakes would work. And the lakes in Ladakh that we had found turned out to be right on the India-China border, and so they were politically way too sensitive and we weren't able to get the permits. Hmm. So we went looking for other lakes, and they found some in Nepal. And I said, well, that works for me. What it meant, though, was that we had to, it became a much more complex project because there's no roads to those lakes in Nepal. So we had to, um, we flew into Kathmandu. We spent a few days there acclimatizing. Then we flew up to Lukla, which is the airport in the Khumbu. It's the airport that you start, if you're going to Mount Everest, you start the Everest trek from. Okay. And this is indeed about we ended up about a day and a half trek from 
the Everspace camp. Interesting. And these licks are sacred as well. Yes, okay. yes. So it's the whole Himalayan Buddhist environment is sacred. I mean, they see the environment as inhabited by deities and other kinds of sort of supernatural creatures that have expectations about how humans need to live on these lands mm. and in the environment. Mm, okay. Um, so when we finally you know, walked five days up to the lakes, we encountered a problem, uh, which was sort of how the story got organized. The story was organized around that, which was whether we'd be allowed to bring the boat on the lake. So they needed to collect water samples from different parts of the lake, including the middle of the lake. So we couldn't just do it from the shore. But the local folks, Sherpas, mostly believe that they're water deities that live in those lakes. And human incursion into the lakes contaminate them. Mm. So they need to be kept very pure. Humans are impure. And so you're not allowed to enter the lakes. And that includes, I mean, there's signs around the lake saying, you know, don't even dip your toes in there. And they're gorgeous, if you saw the pictures. Mm, yeah, I did. Um, so the question was whether we could put a, bring a boat on the lake. And initially I'd said, you know, they won't let us do it. And then a couple scientists in Nepal had said, oh yeah, it'll be fine. We've done it in the past. What happened is that between when those scientists did it and when we arrived, uh, the Nepali government changed. Um, and there's a massive decentralization going on. And it's literally still going on and was going on. So that between when we left Luka, Lukla and when we got to Gokyo Lake, the first of the lakes that we worked in, in Kathmandu, they had made a new regulation that required us to get a new permit. Mm -hmm. So literally, it was unfolding as we were there. Yeah, and um, that was and last summer? That was last summer. Okay. And this was giving local people lots more autonomy and lots more decision-making power. So in the past, boats had gone out on those lakes, but it turns out utterly against the will of the local people. Hmm. But now the local people were actually legally in a position to enforce their values. And their values, they value science and scientific research and knowledge, but not to the exclusion of their cultural um, values. And so we got caught right in the middle of that, where they said, you know, no, we don't want you going out on the lake because it will anger the deity, and there will be consequences for that. And we, you know, we don't want that. We do care about science, but what you're offering us is not a level of protection, we think, that's greater than what we get from living in harmony with the natural environment as we understand it as a sacred environment. And so all sorts of negotiations ensued. And and what was your role in that as like the religious studies person? Were you like the liaison? I was like? the liaison. <laughs> okay. I was the liaison. And so I was representing the scientists and what we wanted to the local community. Okay. And I was also trying to explain this to the scientists because they didn't have a rich understanding of it. I mean, they knew the landscape was sacred, but they really didn't get it. Um, and they didn't understand. They said, well, we've been promised a permit, which is correct. And these people are changing their mind. And they're changing their mind because of not just values, but also politics. And we've come all this way. And 
you know, wait a second, what's going on? And so it, my job was sort of to explain enough about the vision and the political dynamics and the way the politics of religion and values to them that they could start to understand it too and we could all start to find a common ground and work together. And it would have been simpler if, it, if there weren't the politics. But the interesting thing is that what you learn from a situation like this is that politics is actually always part of science and it's always part of religion. Hmm. I mean, it's, it's a really interesting case because it brings together and brought together so explicitly things that are otherwise not talked about, that we don't think about the way that politics supports some kinds of science and makes other kinds of scientific inquiry impossible to do. We don't think about the way that politics, we don't usually think about the way that politics shapes some kinds of religious formations and some kinds of values and misshape or, you know, subvert others. But in fact, all of this is always going on. And this is a really neat real-life case because it brings it all together so clearly. What ended up coming from it is we did get the permit. I was able to convince them that we would be able to do the work in a way that would be respectful of local values and religious, and that understood and could make informed and, again, respectful judgments about religious values as we went about their work, which had been a real problem because scientists in the past, including scientists that we were associated with, had not, had been very, very disrespectful. It turned out to be incredibly important that I was there and that we did this. So three weeks, three weeks, a month or so after we left, and we got permission to go out on, a, on three lakes. In the end, I was pretty convinced that they really only were giving freely that commission permission for two lakes. That one of those lakes they were agreeing, but they really weren't super fully comfortable with it. There was division in the group. And so I said to um, Rich and Harvey and Roberto, we're not going out on that lake. And they said, what do you mean? We got permission. And I said, we may legally have it by the letter, but I, I, I no, we're not going out on that lake. And they were very disappointed, but respected that. Three weeks later, um, some Sherpa kids, kids from the region, had taken a school trip to that lake. And being teenagers, they weren't respecting the local customs, even though it was theirs. And we all know that teenagers don't are the first people to not respect their their culture, their own cultural customs. Exactly. And they were sort of playing around on the edge of the lake, and then they went into the lake, and they were swimming in the lake. Is the sort of Nepali translation? But in fact, what they were doing was just playing around on the edge. But it turns out that the edge has a very steep lip. And the water's extremely cold, of course, because it's glacial-fed. And a kid accidentally stepped off the lip oh into really deep water and wasn't able to swim. Two other kids went in, and three kids drowned. Yeah, That's I mean, the, the most horrible thing you can possibly imagine. Everybody, I, I was no longer in Nepal at that time, but I came back to do another project um, later in the summer. and. I started getting emails here, and then once I was there, everybody said to me, you are so lucky you didn't go in that lake, because if you had taken the boat on that lake, that was the lake we didn't go on. Oh, I see. Um, that's considered the most sacred of them. Um, 
you would have been blamed oh, for this. Definitely. This incident would have been understood as you provoking the deity. Uh, yeah, it's it's not a joke. Yeah, it's, it's not a joke. Yeah, I was gonna say it's it's not just one one small aspect of life. It is like everything is just intertwined. Those religious values yeah. is how they see the world, and which most people do. But that's that's really yeah. yeah. And it's not that they're not educated. These people right. are extremely right. educated, but you know they don't see these as backward values. They see these as values with which they are able to live good and meaningful lives in harmony with the environment and in harmony with their community. It's been about two weeks since you ended the faculty fellowship program. And what are your thoughts on this this most recent semester? Um, and what was your project? And kind of how, how did you get started on that? Well, the faculty fellowship program is amazing. It, it was such an important thing for me to be able to get to focus on my research and writing exclusively is just a, the biggest gift that you can you can get and doing it with the members of of our cohort was just great so i was working on two projects this semester both of them are books i've been working on both of them for a fairly long time um one for a really long time and the other I've had on the back burner, but because of particular events recently, it ended up moving to the to the forefront this semester. Um, the first project is a project on the I describe it as it being about the rise of Christianity in Nepal. Um, Christianity was illegal in Nepal until 2008. Wow. Um, and until the say mid 1990s, you really only I mean, censuses are, are not especially reliable, so we have to take it with a grain of salt. But you really only had a few hundred thousand Christians in the country. Now the estimates are two million and more. Mm. So you've had a just expon exponential growth of Christianity since 2008 when it became legal. Despite the fact that this is probably the most singularly significant social movement in Nepal at this point, you don't have a lot of people working on it. So the way that I look at the rise of Christianity in Nepal is through the stories of these women that I've known for, you know, almost 30 years now, wow. really well in the intimate details of their lives, and trying to understand it through the various types of violences that they've experienced. Um, and I didn't talk about domestic violence, but that's also um, a big part of some of these stories. Um, but the violence of the war, the violence of the state um, changing. I mean, this was the time of uh, neoliberal globalization and privatization in Nepal. So the subsidies that had supported rural economies were removed. So now you can't make a living as a farmer, but if you've only ever been a farmer, how do you live? Well, you're taking out loans to send your sons to work in Dubai under you know, not necessarily um, very safe conditions um, with a great deal of precarity in your life in total. Um, all sorts of health problems now. Um, some of which are kind of psychosomatic, but reflective of big structural social changes, so they're public health issues. Others are, well, when you move to a city and you're not active and you're eating different kinds of food, diabetes shoots up. Mm -hmm. And all of these kinds of things have 
combined to bring women to the churches. And so it's a story about that helps to understand some of the ways that many, many Nepalis are coming to Christianity and what's in Christianity for them, which is important because the public discourse in Nepal is that, oh, it's American and foreign missionaries coming in and using their money to buy Nepali converts, which is, from what I've seen and from any reliable evidence that I know, the absolute minority. Hmm. Um, I'm sure that it happens somewhere, but very rarely. Comparatively, people are coming to Christianity for their own reasons and because of things that are happening in their lives and in the country. So it's really a book about women over time struggling to make lives in very precarious and challenging and changing circumstances. So that is the that's the book project that you're continuing work on that you just did. This that's one of that's them. one of them. Okay. <laughs> that's one of yeah. them. <laughs> yeah. The other one, which is actually the one that um, I just finished or I'm finishing a book proposal for, okay. is uh, about the globalization of vipassana meditation. Yes. And this also has a long history, but this is a history that comes out of my previous research. So um, my first book is on the rise of Theravada Buddhism in Nepal. And Theravada Buddhism is the type of Buddhism that you usually find, that's the dominant um, type of Buddhism in Sri Lanka, in um, Myanmar and Burma, and in Thailand, in Laos, Cambodia as well. In, let's say, the second half of the 20th century, but particularly the last 40 years of that, 30 years of that, um, Theravada Buddhism came to Nepal and really got established, and you started to see Nepali Theravada monasteries. You'd had other types of Buddhism in Nepal, but not, Therav- not Theravada for you know many, many hundreds of years. And so this book was about sort of why this new type of Buddhism, how it was establishing itself, why it was ap- appealing, how it was reforming the ways people, the way the Nepali Buddhists thought of themselves as Buddhists, um, now through a Theravada lens and sort of the critiques that it was making of the Mahayana and Vajrayana types of Buddhism, the traditional types of Buddhisms that they'd been practicing. One element of this Theravada turn is what I call it. Um, was the popularization of lay meditation. And so from that work, I had done this research in this meditation center in Nepal. But this meditation center is actually one of 200 around the globe. And they're identical for practical purposes mm. wherever they are. So there are a couple, that when I was working initially, there was just one center in Nepal. Now I think there are seven. But there are also probably seven or eight, maybe more now, in the U.S. There are a couple in the U.K. There's one, I think, in Australia. There's one in Malaysia. There are a bunch in Southeast Asia. There's one in Brazil. There's a few in Canada. There, there, um, there's one in Israel. I mean, they're literally spread out around in incredibly diverse cultural and linguistic um, settings across the globe. And these centers, the teacher's name is um, Satya Narayan Goenka. They're all Goenka centers. Um, and he passed away a few years ago, but things are still run as if he, as they were when he was alive. Um, they operate according to exactly the same timetable. There's the same rules. 
Um, they teach with the same recorded instructions by Goenka. So there are assistant teachers, they call themselves assistant teachers, who are there and they actually, they're responsible for running the 10-day course that you take. All courses are 10 days. And they unfold exactly, exactly alike, no matter where in the world you are during those 10 days. And the, but the assistant teacher, I mean, basically what they do for the most part, unless you're meeting with them individually, which is not required, and for most people doesn't necessarily happen at all, um, they just press record. Hmm. Not, not record, they press play. And Goenka himself gives all the instructions, all the teachings. It's, there's audio tape for when you're in the med- meditation hall, and then there's videotape of these discourses in the evenings that sort of contextualize what he's been teaching. Hmm. So it, it's a really amazing thing because it's massively popular. It's massively popular globally. It's becoming more popular, again, day by day by day. This is another growing, growing religious phenomenon, rapidly growing. Hmm. And you would expect it. You would expect that what would appeal to Nepalis and what would appeal to Israelis and what would appeal to Americans and what would appeal to Singaporeans and Malaysians um, and Brazilians would be a little different. But in this case, it's not. And so what a, this also book project looks at the globalization of Goenka was an Indian who grew up in Burma and then came back to India and started teaching meditation, Buddhist meditation. He doesn't call it Buddhist. He, um, he's quite clear about that, and that's something that's of interest to me as well. But started teaching Vipassana meditation. Um, this Buddhist-derived meditation, we can say, uncontroversially, in India to Indians and then to foreigners who were in India, this was in the um, 70s, who then brought it back to their own countries and set up centers. So this book asks, what is this, what are the conditions, what is this thing that is so compelling to so many different people? What about it? is so incredibly popular today. And I should say that the Goenka organization doesn't charge for these courses. Mm. They're absolutely free. And each center is free. Each center is free. They're 10-day courses. You're actually there for 12 days. They say it's a 10-day course. It's 10 days of silence. Is there one that is near here? Is there one that's like in North Carolina? There is not. There's one in Georgia, um, in South Georgia. I feel like I have heard of this. You probably have. The, of 10 Days in Silence. I'm pretty sure I know someone who is about to sign up for something. I wonder if it's similar. But okay. Yeah. It, it, the chances. So, so he, Goenka is one of the, even though now mindfulness meditation has become sort of separated from the term Vipassana. Sure. Um, for so many people, and now it's being taught in so many different places, say in the U.S., in so many different ways, and as mindfulness. So you can go take a mindfulness course um, at the hospital, UNC Hospital. John Kabat-Zinn, who developed that course originally, was a teacher, a student of Goenka's once. Really? Goenka taught so many of the 
um, Euro-American mindfulness teachers. So even though he doesn't say that he teaches mindfulness and the people who are still within his organization don't use the language of mindfulness, I think because it's a little too vague for them, they want to be much more precise. They're very precise and very rigorous. Mm. He's the root. He's one of the sort of core roots from which this left Asia and went global. So it's possible that somebody else is offering a 10-day course like this that's not him, but I would say chances are really good that actually it's a going course you know about. Yeah, I think so, (laughs) because when you started saying the name, too, I was like, I think that's... (laughs) And I was like, it's a few, it's hours away from here, but I didn't remember if it was in North Carolina or if I was, you know, it's drivable. I'm interested. It's drivable, south, not west. (laughs) Yeah, right. I'll have to look, I'll have to look that up. So you don't pay, it's completely free. After you take the course, if you want to give a donation, you can. And I... And literally, there's no, they do not, they, they'll give you a receipt, but they don't track whether you give a donation. They don't follow up. They, they don't, um, if you give a donation or you don't give a donation, unless they know you and for some reason somebody's like paying attention, the organization will never know. I've seen people give five rupees, which is like, you know, less, a nickel, let's say, right? And I've seen people give, you know, and I know people who send large amounts of money every month. Um, It's completely, completely voluntary, and you're never shamed or anything. So that this can grow, they can buy land, they can build centers, they can run centers and feed people and house them and all of this, pay the bills. I mean, the place in, the first center in the U.S. is in Massachusetts, and it's been growing ever since it was established. Mm-hmm. They're constantly constructing. Mm-hmm. I mean, this thing is really compelling to people. It's speaking to people. And so the project sort of asks, what is it? Why is that so? What does he teach? How do people connect to what he teaches? How do people understand what he teaches? How do different people in different parts of the world understand it? What does it sound like in different languages? And what are the conditions, the global and local conditions of possibility for this thing to exist that he's created and for people to connect to it? Mm. What's a book that changed your life? I mean, if you ask me this every year, I'd probably give you a set of different books depending on the mood because I fall in love with books and they do change my life and that's how I got to be where I am. But I think right now, I would say the Ibis Trilogy by Amitav Ghosh. It's fiction. It's three different books. Um, And it starts in colonial um, Bengal. So Bengal under, um, I don't remember if it's already under British rule or simply under the effectively British rule, but because of the trade with the British East India Company. And then it moves to to China. The first book is called Sea of Poppies, and it looks at, actually a theme throughout all of them is the opium trade. Mm-hmm. Um, and it looks, it looks at sort of the way these different lives of itinerant, let's say, Indians, and we can say Chinese, and Southeast Asians, but of course in an empire, in a colonial world, where you don't have those national identities established yet. And what 
I love about these books and what were so mind-blowing for me was to I can read about how citizenship changes the way that we understand ourselves and we now have learned to understand ourselves as people within nation states and see the world within nation states and we understand travel as being between nation states and when I go somewhere I carry my passport and so on. But of course this was a totally different world and it wasn't that long ago and it was the foundation for the world that we know now. So he creates these remarkable and really developed and nuanced characters that are not of nation states and moves them around and brings them into interaction and brings them into interaction with historical events, the Opium Wars, with the British East India Company, with the um, sort of early Singapore and the Mar Southeast Asian Maritime Empire, which is fascinating. It opened my eyes to the ways that the very compartmentalized identities and forms of citizenship that we have now came out of much more um, loose, unexpected, unscripted interactions, which is actually life. And you, your own, you live your own life this way, and we react to events. You see those characters reacting to events, but it it gave me a wonderful it gave me a wonderful insight into the present. And having spent time in you know spending so much time in South Asia, and when I was reading the books in Southeast Asia, it really opened my opened my eyes to that and to just different ways of uh, imagining human identity. Wonderful. Thank you. Check back at iah.unc.edu for the latest news and events at Hyde Hall. You can access all of our episodes on our website as well as iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify. Please like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at IAH underscore UNC.